and we're studying the life of several people around the life of Jesus toward the end of the book of Mark. We looked at the, the women, uh, the true worshiper, Mary, and we also saw from Pastor Ben, Judas, the betrayer. And today we're going to look at another character, and we're uh, looking through the book of Mark chapter 14. And chapter 14 is an interesting chapter because this is the big turning point where we go from the pinnacle of the life of Jesus, uh, Palm Sunday, he's coming in, riding a donkey, people are hailing him, Hosanna, the King of Kings. And by the end of chapter 14, Jesus is condemned to death. Woven into the story of Jesus is another story, and you would think that if Jesus is the protagonist, the, the counterpart or the antagonist would be the other big uh, major character but what is interesting is this, that Jesus, by name, is mentioned 11 times in chapter 14. The antagonist Judas' name is mentioned only twice. There are two other major disciples, Andrew, uh, um, no, John, and James. They're both mentioned just once. But there's another character, Peter, whose name is mentioned eight times in chapter 14. And so, though Peter is not the protagonist or the antagonist. He is the reflective character. He's the bystander trying to figure out who Jesus is and really um, reflecting upon himself. Peter is mentioned on five different occasions in chapter 14, four by name and one uh, by inference. And we're going to look at all of these five, three more closely. And we're going to look at three locations in which these encounters happen. The, the mountain or the peak of the mountain, the slumber in the garden, and the failure by the fire. First, the peak in the mount, at the mountain. Peter is mentioned by name first in chapter 14, verse 27. The disciples had finished washing the feet uh, and uh, the last supper. They were at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives overlooks Jerusalem. It's kind of on a, on a peak. I've been there before. And this was near go time. They kind of sense that this is where Jesus makes the final move. Now, by this time, Peter had shown himself as like the Alpha disciples. He was part of the inner circles in which uh, the three disciples would, uh, would go with Jesus in these uh, more intimate settings of teaching and witnessing miracles. When Jesus asked, who do the people say that I am? It's Peter who answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, when Jesus had, was washing the feet of the disciples, Peter vehemently said, no, you, you shall not wash my feet. When Jesus said, well, if I can't wash your feet, you won't have anything to do with me. And Peter said, then wash all of me. He goes extra in that. And now let's look at chapter 14, verses 27 through 31. And in some ways, many people would think that this is the pinnacle of Peter's followership. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. You know, this is a, a courageous, bold call of commitment by Peter. This is the alpha dog disciple proclaiming his allegiance to Jesus. 
You know, it's kind of like us going up to the front in an altar call saying, I will die as a martyr for you, Jesus. This is the pinnacles of Peter's faith and followership. But what I'm going to make the case for is this. Although we see this as the pinnacle, the high point of Peter's faith, I'm going to actually say that it probably isn't. Let's look more closely at what is happening. Jesus, in verse 27, uh, proclaims that this is what will happen. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus makes a statement about what will happen and the disciples' part in it. The first thing that Peter does is talk back to Christ. Now, he had said that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He said that you are God in, as man. You are the omnipotent, uh, uh, omniscient, sovereign, loving God, man. And I worship you. And to this God, he's saying, you are wrong, basically. You are omniscient, maybe, but you are wrong. Even though they all will fall away, I will not. It is an irony that Peter calls Jesus God, but says, you are wrong at the same time. Not only that, what Peter does is this, you know, you may be right, Jesus, when you're talking about all these other chumps, or the other disciples, right? But not me. And he, he compares himself to the faith of the other disciples, the commitment of the other disciples. He makes not only a point of who he is, but who the others are not. And finally, in verse 30, truly I say, truly I tell you, for this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. And chapter 14, verse 31 is perhaps outwardly the pinnacle of Peter's faith. Right now, he is saying that um, if I have to even die as a martyr for you, I will not deny you. You know, I don't think that Peter was lying. And from what we know of Peter's uh, personality, he, he's just a, an honest person, perhaps a bit brash and, and perhaps a little bit rash, but he's not the type to kind of lie. I think he meant what he said. And at this moment in time, what he intentionally, I mean, what he earnestly felt is that if he had to even give his life for the sake of Jesus, that's what he would do. He was on a spiritual high, a zealous, truly believing that he can give his life for Jesus. But what is important is this. He is saying this, trusting in his own ability, in his own faith, in his own courage. You're wrong. I'm better than these guys. I know myself better. At an initial glance, it might seem like the pinnacle of Peter's faith. And if his faith was dependent upon who he is, yeah, we may be tempted to think it's true. But I believe what Peter was doing is following our uh, secular humanistic self-help guru model of just believe in yourself. 
It is what Oprah Winfrey would say. It is confidence in our bodies, minds, and spirits that allows us to keep looking for new adventures. The former prime minister of Israel, Golda Meir, said, trust yourself, create the kind of self that you will be happy to live with your life. It is uh, what Dr. Benjamin Spock, if you raised children, you might have had some of his books. He is the one who said, trust yourself, you know more than you think you do. Or Christopher Robbins, if you know who he is, he is uh, Winnie the Pooh's friend, said, Always remember, you are braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. And also, someone said, if you're presenting yourself with confidence, you can pull off pretty much anything. Katy Perry said that. (laughs) The world tells you that if you can just believe in yourself, you can accomplish much. And that our problem is that we doubt ourselves too much. And you know... For a lot of what we do in life, that might be true, but I believe what we will discover about Peter is that is his fatal flaw, that he trusted in himself. I don't think he was lying when he said what he said in verse 31, but his, uh, his confidence was based upon himself, and he was true to himself at the moment. And as many religious people would say, I'm going to try my best, and I believe I am obedient enough, faithful enough, I am zealous enough, but I believe this was his fatal flaw. The next location we get to is the garden. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. You may have heard about this famous garden. It is the place in which Judas will come with the temple guards and arrest Jesus. And it is this place in which Jesus takes three of his best friends, his earthly best friends, uh, James and John, and they were the ones who were arguing, hey, we think we're pretty important. Can we sit at your right and your left hand? And Peter goes with him. In verse 32, and they went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And Jesus' simple request is this. He separated these three from the rest, and I want you to come with me to the quiet of this garden, and I'm going to pray, would you just be with me? And although Jesus was the Son of God, I want us to remember that Jesus was also uh, the Son of Man, meaning he was fully God with all of the attributes of God, but fully human being with all of the inner turmoils and the agony that a human being will experience Verse 33, and he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And he asks his friends, would you just be with me? You don't have to do anything. Just be with me. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that. And and this is a remarkable prayer that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus God-man saying this prayer to the Father God, the first person of the Trinity. And theologically, I don't quite understand this. I think there's a huge enigma here. But Jesus prays. He falls on the ground and prays that if it were possible, the hour might pass from me. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Do Do you see this prayer? Jesus is praying, God, you're sovereign. You can do anything, can you not? Is it possible that 
we can be, that, that we can provide substitutionary atonement for the sins of all humanity without me paying the wrath of God upon my head? Is there a way for uh, atonement to be accomplished without this happening? And he says, but your will, not my will. And I don't know how the second person of the Trinity can have a will that is different from the first person of the Trinity, but at this moment in time, he does. It's an agonizing moment. He knows that in a little while, he will be crucified. And oftentimes, the focus is on just the physical suffering of the cross. But we know at that moment in time that he will be torn from his uh, trinity union with God. Where, where are you, Father? He will say. Is there any way that I can be spared from this but your will? It was a prayer of agony. And during this particular moment, he, the human Jesus asked his three friends, can you sit here and watch with me? Can you pray with me? Verse 37, he came and found them sleeping. And this is not the first time that people have fallen asleep during prayer meetings, right? I don't know if any of you have ever been at an early morning prayer at 6.30 and you, maybe you have to be here because you're a deacon or someone you know, forced you. And then we turn down the lights in 30 minutes, there's this music going on, and you, like, you see some people like getting on their knees, and you just, and then you, you kind of, you know, check out for a while. I think I had good intention, that's good. Found them sleeping, and what doesn't come out in the English um, version of the Bible, um, and the, the, the reason it doesn't come out is because in English, the second person pronoun, you, can mean singular or Y'all, right? And so in this particular interaction, we're led to believe that Jesus came to the three disciples and he's saying, you all, but I want to um, clarify here, verse 37, Simon, are you singular asleep? Could you singular not watch one hour? All three of the disciples were sleeping, but he points to Simon, who had just recently said, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. You, you said you'd be willing to die for me, but you couldn't stay awake one hour for me? In my most time of need, you couldn't stay awake? You know, there are times, I don't know uh, about you, but I, I, I believe that uh, just knowing this room, many of us in this room had have at one point in time made great grand promises to God. Remember that time in youth group when, when the preacher just was on fire and the lights went low and the music was playing and they say, any of you want to devote your life to Jesus in some spectacular way, would you come to the front and you came up and I know you, a lot of our catapults, that's what you, you did, I heard, this past retreat. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Vocational ministry, maybe. Or some of you, some of us, at a missions conference, when the speaker said, uh, you know, there are all these Christians who are comfortable in suburbia America, but what we need are people willing to go to the remotest parts of the world where it is dangerous and hard. Would you be willing to go wherever God calls you? 
would you stand from your seat and you're one of those who stood? Or you, you heard a talk on stewardship in which the, the speaker admonished us about how in America, in the West, we're, we're so materialistic and selfish while the global church is suffering. And, and that speaker admonished you to live more modestly, set a, a limit to how you will live and give the rest for global work. And you made that promise, these grand promises, and at the moment you meant it. And you felt really good about yourself. I am the person who made that commitment, that, that statement about missions, about vocational ministry, about stewardship. We do that, but a few days later, it is when the Holy Spirit prompts you on the smaller things. Will you forgive that person? He said, no, but that person was, you know, hurt me. Uh, would you open up the scripture and, and read? And go, oh, I, I don't want to be legalistic, so no. no would you pray? Go, ah, I would, but I have to read these tweets and retweet them. Right? It, it, it's fascinating how we can make grandiose uh, statements to God, but at the same time, just within hours or days, we whiff on these smaller acts of obedience. Jesus says something in verse 38, and he now directs a statement not simply to Simon, but to all of them, including us. Watch and pray that you, plural, may not enter into temptation. The spirit, is, spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak. He's saying, Peter, your intentions perhaps was good. You may have meant well, and you may not have been lying what you, when you said what you said in verse 31, but your flesh is weak. You, believing yourself, you are unable to fulfill that promise that you've made. You know, oftentimes we think of Peter's promise and his failure to be connected with this failure by the fire when he denies Jesus three times, but I'm going to say to you that his failure at the fire was prepared by his failure or slumber at the garden. Part of the reason why he failed at the fire is because he fell asleep at the garden. I think part of the reason why a lot of us fail when we get the big test is because we haven't practiced in the small test. We haven't been obedient to the small callings. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to convince something, and I don't know if I should, but I'm going to do it. Okay, thank you. You've gotten permission. A long time ago, we were practicing softball, and there was a little girl at practice, and she kind of knew me, and she made the statement, Pastor Steve, yes, did you become a pastor because you couldn't find a real job? <laughs> you know, like, I, I know she meant well. I mean, she wasn't trying to be mean or anything, and, you know, I'm not going to argue with a little girl. I'm not going to tell her that I graduated from UCLA computer engineering. You know, made more money than anyone else I knew out of college. I was promoted three times in three years and worked in aerospace. I wasn't going to tell her that. And, and, I, and I gave all of that up to go into vocational ministry. I moved to God-forsaken Texas. 
I had to go to seminary. I, you know, I, my friends all believed in me. I, I, um, and, uh, you know, I didn't tell her that I got full scholarship to, for tuition and books at seminary and, and, and things of that nature. I, I look, I, um, look at me. You know, I didn't say any of that. And when I was in seminary, I found out fairly quickly that, it, you know, I, I feel bad that I'm going to say this, but seminary wasn't that hard. Uh, computer engineering was hard. I, I, there would there'd be times I'd look at a page to, in my calculus or engineering and I didn't, or physics. I didn't, quite, I didn't understand. I'm a decently smart guy, but I, like, I would spend an hour on a page. In seminary, they say, just read these pages. It doesn't matter if you understand them or not, and you can get an A. I said, wow, you know. I thought, well, if I get a B, because I just didn't have time, you know, like, but I'm going to ace seminary. I'm pretty confident in, in my spirituality. One day, um, I took a class at Dallas Theological Seminary, ISTN, uh, THM program. I took a class on prayer. Um, and when I got the syllabus, I, I did what I normally do. I took, I take all my syllabi, and I compiled them into one big syllabi. And I'm pretty organized, so I know exactly what I have to do every week and such. Um, and what is interesting about this uh, class on prayer is that uh, you can get an A if you just read these books, uh, write these papers, no problem. And then they had this third requirement where you have to pray like X amount of minutes every day. And depending on how many minutes you pray every day, you can get an A, B, or C. Right? And I got the syllabi, syllabus, and I got, no problem. And I'm like, it's me. And I'm Korean, too. And, you know, Koreans are known for praying. So I, it's probably in my genes. <laughs> and I looked at the time, and I go, yeah, I prayed. Yeah, I prayed like that, you know, often. And so the class began, and uh, first week, and I'm like, second week, like, you know, one day I miss, and third week, a few more and I start to realize that. And, um, you know, I'm, um, I may not be that disciplined in prayer, but I, I'm pretty high integrity. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to, like, mm, I'm thinking about prayer while, you know, doing other things. <laughs> and so after about third week, I realized I can't, I'm not going to ace prayer. I mean, I can get a B in some other classes, but I can't get a B in prayer. And so I dropped prayer. <laughs> I didn't want to get a B or a C or incomplete. I, I dropped prayer. So here was Steve Chang, who had made great, bold proclamation to follow Jesus. And Jesus is saying, can you not simply just pray? Oftentimes, the reason why we fail in the big tests of life is because we haven't been obedient in the small calls of life. The third scene goes this way. Um, and before we get there, um, right after the failed prayer meeting, Judas comes with the temple guards. They arrest Jesus. And uh, in verse 47, he, it's not named Peter, but we know it's Peter from John. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now Peter's ready to fight. So, okay, it's time now. And I believe Peter was ready to give his life. But Jesus says, put away your sword. 
I'm going to let them arrest me. And I believe Peter was immensely confused. Verse 54, we're told that Peter follows from a distance. There's still an affection and allegiance to Jesus, but there's now this fear and anxiety and confusion. I still want to be associated with Jesus, but I don't want the, the price that comes with following too closely to Jesus. Verse, 40, verse 66, while he, Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were, also, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. And a servant girl says, no, no, aren't, aren't you friends with the one who is being condemned to death? Verse 68, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Verse 69, the servant girl says to bystanders, I think it's him. He was with Jesus. He denies it. Verse 70, some bystanders say to him, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man whom you speak is the strongest denial that he can possibly make. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him before the rooster crows twice you will deny me three times what a spectacular failure we see Peter going from this peak in the mountain to this bitter utter failure by the fire and it says that he went out and wept in Luke's accounts we are told that Peter went outside and wept bitterly I don't know how often men weep bitterly I think it was like ugly crying. How many times do men ugly cry? You know, there is like, I, I don't care who's watching. I'm, and then like, it's not coming out. You know, like, uh. I think for most men, that only happens maybe once or twice in their life. And Peter had to get alone outside. No one's looking. And he just wept and broke down. I think partially it's because he realized he had utterly failed in what he promised. He had disappointed himself, disappointed Jesus, disappointed his disciples, disappointed everyone. It's a complete contrast, verse 72 to, to verse 31. Verse 31 was a, a Peter who was confident, courageous, and cocky. He was at the peak, but now in verse 72, he was at the valley. He couldn't hold his head up anymore. I don't think he can say that if I have to give my life for you, I will not deny you. He knew that that wasn't true. I don't know if Peter could even, even say, I'm better than these other guys. I don't think he believed he was better than those other guys anymore. But this is what's interesting. There's a third set of interaction, um, and it's found in John chapter 21. It's by the lake, and um, Jesus says to him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. And a third time he says, you know all things. And I believe Peter was inferring to, uh, referring to this. Jesus, I know I haven't proven that I loved you. But you are omniscient. You can look inside my heart. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then follow me. It is interesting to, in that this particular failure of a disciple, Jesus gives this commission, this calling. 
you know, I believe that Peter had an affection for Jesus. He had an allegiance to Jesus in verse 31, but the problem was that his faith was based upon him, himself. And it was only when his confidence in himself was broken that he was more ready to receive the commission, the calling of Jesus. You know, we normally look at the, trans, uh, the transformation from verse 31 to 72 as he was on his pinnacle, now he's at the valley, but I would argue with you that the Peter of verse 31 was less ready for the calling because his faith was based upon his own, himself, but it's verse 72, um, Peter, who was utterly broken, had no confidence in himself that he was more ready for the gospel. Let me ask you, blessed are the poor in spirit, which represents that uh, poor in spirit more, the 31 or the 72. It's the one who's weeping who realized, I'm poor in spirit. There's this quote out that I'll end with. And I'm gonna ask the band to come up. And the quote goes something like this, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Some attribute this to Tim Keller, but I, I think it's uh, Corey Ten Boom, and I'll say it's Corey Ten Boom because she's older. If you don't know who Corrie Tan Boom is, uh, she was a young lady who grew up in the Netherlands. She was uh, one of the first uh, female watchmakers. She, she wasn't married at the time, but her faith uh, made her determined to help anyone who was of need, uh, including the mentally disabled. And when, the war, when World War II started, their family, her father and her sister and Corrie, began to hide Jews in their home. When the, at the age of 23, um, she and her sister were captured and sent to the concentration camps. She, um, her sister, uh, right before she died, say, said to Corey, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. After her sister's death, 15 days later, Corey was released by a clerical error. And about a week after she was released, all the other ladies around her age at that time were put into the gas chamber. It was this Corrie Tan Boom who had nothing. She's the one who said, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Listen, if you're here today and you can identify with the, uh, the Peter of verse 72, you realize that you're not smart enough, strong enough, faithful enough, obedient enough. You're utterly broken. Perhaps you are poor in spirit, and we are more able to receive God's calling.